Welcome back, one and all, to the Unknown Friends podcast, where we talk about books and their authors. Today, you have tuned into season two, episode 19. And if you're new to the podcast, I hope you enjoy this episode and subscribe so that you can keep up with our weekly discussions. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions. And if you're ever interested in learning more about me and what I do beyond the podcast, I write play scripts and skits for churches, schools, camps, and other Christian theater groups. And you can learn all about my writing at kittywamproductions.com. Now, today we are discussing a book that I read for the first time about a year and a half ago. And it was good enough that it made it to my worth rereading list. Ray Bradbury's classic novel Fahrenheit 451. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about Ray Bradbury's life and development as a writer. I will tell you a little bit about the backstory of Fahrenheit 451 specifically, but I won't go in-depth into Bradbury's bio because I have already done that. If you recall, I have previously reviewed another novel by Ray Bradbury in season one of the podcast. I discussed his book, Dandelion Wine, and that was last July in episode 16 of the first season. And in that episode, I went into a fair amount of detail about Bradbury's life. So if you're interested in learning about that, just head over to season one, episode 16. I will link to it in this episode's description so it's easy to find. But today, I will just quickly refresh your memory on the basics of his life. So, of course, Ray Bradbury is an American writer. He was born in 1920 and raised at first in Waukegan, Illinois, and then in Los Angeles in his teens. He always loved the arts, uh, visual arts, cinema, literature, and he read a ton growing up. And as a kid, he was especially drawn to weird fiction, if you know what I mean. Fantasy, sci-fi, horror um, although his tastes broadened as he became an adult. He started writing fairly young as well, and got his first short story published at age 17. And then he spent his whole life working as a writer and ended up with hundreds of short stories published, plus a lot of novels, some stage plays, screenplays, essays, poetry. He had quite a range. Uh, he got married in 1947, and he and his wife had four daughters, and the couple were together for over 50 years until her death in 2002, and then he passed away 10 years later at age 91. So that is a very brief overview of Bradbury's life. Now, Fahrenheit 451. This was published in 1953, and it's probably his most famous work, and he insisted that it was the only work of science fiction that he ever wrote, although a lot of people view some of his other writings as sci-fi. But he maintained that those were truly fantasy. Anyway, Fahrenheit 451 is one of those novels that pictures a future society in which everything is much worse than appears on the surface. It is a dystopian novel. So it's set in America in the year 2049, and our main character is a man named Guy Montag, and he works as a fireman. 
However, fireman does not mean in this novel what we are used to it meaning. It's not a firefighter, but a fire starter. So in the fictional world of Fahrenheit 451, the job of firemen is to burn homes that contain books because books have been outlawed. I'll get into the why of that in a minute. But reading books is not allowed, and whenever it's discovered that a person owns books and has been concealing them from the government, the firemen are sent in to burn down the house and the books inside it. So Guy Montag works as a fireman, and the novel starts with him coming home from work one day and meeting this strange new girl in his neighborhood, Clarice McClellan. She talks with him for a few minutes, and in just that short amount of time, startles him with some of the things she says and the way she thinks. She asks questions, questions no one else thinks of asking. She actually looks at the world around her and wants to talk about it, wants to talk about things that matter. So Clarice makes a strong impression on Guy Montag, and over the next few days, he runs into her every day on his way home from work, and he enjoys hearing her talk. Um, but before that, actually, something happens that very first day coming home from work that shakes him. So Montag has no children, but he is married, and his wife's name is Mildred. And when he comes home that day, she is already asleep, and he realizes that she has drastically overdosed on sleeping pills. So he gets EMTs to come and they pump her stomach and actually replace her blood with fresh blood so as to remove the poison from her system. So she survives, but Montag is deeply shaken. He he wonders whether she overdosed on purpose. And between this disturbing incident and the surprising, intriguing way Clarice questions the society around her, Montag starts doubting almost everything that he thinks he knows. Then a little while later, one day at work, he and the other firemen have to burn down the house of a woman who was found hiding books, and she refuses to leave the house. And so that incident further disquiets Montag. And it's about at this point in the novel that we finally learn a bit more about how the world got into the state it's in, with books being forbidden and ordinary women like Mildred overdosing on sleeping meds and all that. So essentially, with the advent of media other than books, so radio, TV, films, etc., people's attention spans started shortening. Their demand for fast-paced entertainment increased. In fact, the pace of everything increased. Transportation got faster. Games and sports got more violent. And everything else succumbed to this need for constant entertainment, constant noise. So at first, books were abridged because people just wouldn't read anything long, anything, quote, boring. But eventually, even the abridged books lost people's interest. Books just became irrelevant as other forms of mass media basically dumbed down the society and addicted everyone to entertainment. And so if people did pick up a book to try to read it, it just confused them, 
or depressed them by trying to make them think. So the government didn't really have to outlaw books. Most people just didn't want them anymore. But a few rare people resisted the way the world was going and wanted to preserve books, knowing their value. And so ultimately, books did have to be officially outlawed, and firemen were repurposed to destroy any books that were found after they had been made illegal. So this is the world Guy Montag inhabits and helps maintain as a fireman himself. But he never really knew the history of how things had developed. He had never looked into a book himself, and he'd never really questioned the way things were until his wife almost died and he heard Clarice McClellan asking questions that surprisingly made a lot of sense. So I won't tell you how the story develops from there. It really is a suspenseful story with some great twists, and I definitely don't want to spoil those for you. But obviously, as you can guess, Guy Montag starts pulling away more and more from the society around him. He gets more and more curious about books and what's in them, and he starts to realize just how crucial it is to find answers to his questions. Because, I mean, he's wrestling with the very purpose of life and the meaning of human relationships. He must figure out what is wrong with the world around him and what he can do about it. So that is all I can say about the storyline of Fahrenheit 451. Oh, and the title, by the way, um, comes from, well, purportedly, it is the auto-ignition temperature of paper, 451 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, technically, that depends on what kind of paper you're talking about. There's, there's really a range of temperatures, but that's the inspiration for the title, anyway. Now, as far as the overall tone of the book and, and Bradbury's style here, I will say I think his way of writing is very cool. It's both poetic and even lyrical at times, and also almost jarringly visceral sometimes. Not stream of consciousness exactly, but he will definitely break grammar rules if that's what it takes to get the reader to feel what the character is feeling. It's powerful writing, and I struggle to know how to describe it, but there is an immediacy to his writing. It's, it's vivid and gripping. And then as far as the tone or, or mood of Fahrenheit 451, uh, let me just compare it to other famous dystopian novels, um, 1984 and Brave New World. If you're familiar with either of those, they are both much darker than Fahrenheit 451. Yes, Bradbury shows us some bleak stuff, but without spoilers, he does allow us some hope in the end. And I like that, personally. 1984 and Brave New World are just so depressing, and so I appreciate the balance in Fahrenheit. It is harrowing at times and convicting, but it also kind of offers a way out of the darkness. Now, I said I'd share a little bit about the origins of this novel, how Bradbury developed it. So as I said, it was published in 1953, which 
does blow my mind just a little bit how accurate his depiction of future America really was. But, um, so published in 53, but it really developed from ideas he'd been thinking on for many years. Even as a very young man, he was concerned when he encountered any kind of censorship. Uh, he didn't appreciate that his local library did not carry copies of H.G. Wells' novels because they weren't considered literary enough. Uh, and in the 1930s, leading up to World War II, book burnings by the Nazis and also Stalin's Great Purge deeply troubled Ray Bradbury. He was just appalled. And then even in America itself, in the 40s and 50s, of course, the Cold War began and the U.S. government started shutting down some people, including artists, who it was feared might be associated with the communists. And that bothered Bradbury. So censorship and specifically governmental overreach was on his mind. And in the late 40s, early 50s, as he saw some of that happening, even in America, those themes started coming through in his writing. And then, on the other side of things, of course, he had grown up when radio was huge, and by this time in the 40s, he was seeing TV and films start to permeate the culture in what he felt was a very dangerous way. And so that obviously comes into Fahrenheit as well. But the actual writing of this novel has an interesting history. So its development can really be traced through two short stories and a novella that Bradbury wrote in the 40s. So in 1947 and 48, he had this idea for a short story that involved book burning as its premise, and it depicted a confrontation between a librarian and a book censor. And although it was not published until years later, Bradbury titled this short story Bright Phoenix. Well, while it was still collecting dust in his files, a couple years later he had this encounter one night as he was walking down the street and a policeman stopped him and asked what he was doing, maybe a bit uncalled for in this scenario, and so Bradbury just gave him the smart remark that he was putting one foot in front of the other which gives you a little idea of the kind of guy Bradbury was. Anyway, so this exchange actually gave birth to another short story Bradbury wrote, titled The Pedestrian, in which he imagines a future society where uh, pedestrians, especially at night, are very rare because everyone is glued to their TVs at home. And this pedestrian character is confronted by police, and he actually gets taken away in the story to the Psychiatric Center for Research on Regressive Tendencies. So that's scary. <laughs> I, t I don't know how that story ends, but that is its premise. Anyway, then in 1951, Bradbury decided to combine and kind of expand both of these short stories, Bright Phoenix and The Pedestrian, into a novella which he titled The Fireman and he got it published in a sci-fi magazine that year. But then a publisher read it and asked Bradbury to develop the story even more, make it twice as long, and Bradbury did. It took him nine days, and it got published in 1953, under the title Fahrenheit 451, finally. 
So that's the novel's backstory. There, there were a lot of different influences and ideas that, that came together for Bradbury to create this now classic. So lastly, we need to talk a little bit about the book's themes. We can't talk about all of them, but we can touch on the main ones. So first of all, it is commonly said that Fahrenheit 451 is about censorship. Well, yes and no. We have already discussed how, yes, that was a concern of Bradbury's. He was worried about an overreaching government. He was worried also about the tendency of special interest groups and minorities to take control over what people wrote and said and even thought. Uh, Bradbury had no time for political correctness at all. And he saw that freedom of speech was or could easily be at risk. So in that sense, yes, censorship was a concern and is a primary theme of the novel, but I don't think the word censorship on its own really communicates the nuances of Bradbury's thought here, especially when you take into account the other side of Fahrenheit 451, what I would call its central theme. People in general don't want books anymore in this world he's imagining. Remember, in the novel, yes, the government has to outlaw books in order to suppress the few literary people left in society, but as a whole, the culture, the common people, actually led the so-called censorship of books. They lost interest. They're in favor of the ban on books. Books are boring at best and deeply disturbing at worst, so of course no one wants them. Essentially, Bradbury saw mass media beginning to take over people's minds and their lives. And he said, oh no, this is, this is terrible. People aren't thinking anymore, and they aren't even living anymore. And it's just amazing to me how accurate his perception was, how accurate his imagination was of what 21st century life might be like. The things he predicts are crazy. Um, so for instance, of course, everything is fast. The cars are fast. Wars are fast. Access to information is fast. People's attention spans are almost non-existent. Guy Montag and his wife Mildred, the walls of their living room are screens, TV screens, basically, and they are always on. And Mildred literally lives for the entertainment in these walls. And in fact, the, the shows are sort of personalized. So Mildred gets her own little script that goes with her favorite TV show, and the characters are doing their roles, and it's like a typical silly program about a dysfunctional family, and there are pauses for Mildred to say her lines and feel like she's joining the characters in the show. So for real, she lives in the middle of these TV screens and calls the characters on the show her family. This is her life. She doesn't go outside, she doesn't work, she sits and inhabits this entertainment world, and constantly needs its stimulation in order to keep her from thinking about how empty her life is. And this is truer across the board than perhaps we even realize, because even for those of us who have jobs and, and you know, have lives, 
it is still all too easy to be drawn into the imaginary world of media. I can attest to that. And that is incredibly dangerous. And two, Mildred, I didn't mention this detail yet, but it is so accurate, it's scary. Anytime when, for whatever reason, she's not able to be watching the TV, she has the equivalent of AirPods in her ears. Bradbury calls them seashells, tiny little radios that sit in Mildred's ears and keep a constant stream of sound going into her brain at all times. That way she doesn't have to think. And she also doesn't have to interact with others. She and her husband haven't had a real conversation in years, probably. And Bradbury, actually after he wrote the book, he described an incident in the late 1950s which shocked him and relates to this, and and I've got to quote this to you guys. This is what he said. In writing the short novel Fahrenheit 451, I thought I was describing a world that might evolve in four or five decades. But only a few weeks ago, in Beverly Hills one night, a husband and wife passed me walking their dog. I stood staring after them, absolutely stunned. The woman held in one hand a small, cigarette-package-sized radio, its antenna quivering. From this sprang tiny copper wires, which ended in a dainty cone plugged into her right ear. There she was, oblivious to man and dog, listening to far winds and whispers and soap opera cries, sleepwalking, helped up and down curbs by a husband who might just as well not have been there. This was not fiction. And I agree with his reaction. I, th- I think this is a crying shame, and yet we see it everywhere now. My family can attest to the fact that one of the things in life that bothers me most, it really disturbs me, is when a person is distracted by a phone or anything like it when in the company of another person. Yes, I understand there are sometimes good reasons for this, but very often there's no good reason, and it deeply, deeply concerns me. Just one of my very least favorite things about technology is the way it tends to pull us away from real human contact, from personal, immediate relationships. And Bradbury depicts that powerfully in Fahrenheit 451. Uh, This insight is, I think, what most profoundly impresses me about this book. It is so true, it's disturbingly true, and that's why it needs to be read. So, the long and short of it is, I do recommend Fahrenheit 451. It's compelling and convicting. It's complicated and gives you lots to think about, enough for multiple readings. And it is extremely relevant today. Now, as is so often the case, unfortunately, I do have to warn you that there's a fair amount of profanity in the book. Not too much at the beginning, but as the plot escalates, so does the language. Now, admittedly, here, strong language isn't thrown around quite as carelessly as it sometimes is in books. Um, The profanity coincides with Guy Montag's growing awareness of the disastrous situation around him. So you could argue that he has good reason for using words with immensely weighty meanings. 
his experience of the world around him is literally going up in flames, and he realizes that pretty much humanity is doomed. Even so, personally, I am still bothered by this strong language. Um, I would say Guy still doesn't have a good enough reason to be profane. In fact, I can't really imagine what would be a good enough reason, but that is my opinion. Now, for myself, although I can't listen to too many books in a row with this kind of profanity because I just get weighed down by it and my spirit needs to be lifted by something cleaner. But that said, I realize that strong language is very difficult to avoid in books, especially in modern classics. And for me, Fahrenheit 451 is worth reading despite this drawback, and even worth rereading. I think the book is needed in our world, and Bradbury's insights are too thought-provoking to miss. So that is all I have to say. I hope this review of Fahrenheit 451 has been informative and interesting, and I would love to hear from you all if you have thoughts about this book. Always feel free to message me on Instagram or Facebook. Those links are in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the Unknown Friends podcast by becoming a patron, you can find the link to our Patreon page in this episode description as well. You can join our community there for as little as $2 a month, and that helps so much to support the podcast, and you get bonus content of various types in return. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash unknownfriends. Now next week, for our first episode in the month of June, I will be discussing the novel I Juan de Pareja by Elizabeth Borton de Trevino. This is a historical novel written for children, but I found it very enjoyable. And I, I look forward to sharing lots more about it next week. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and to learn more about me and my writing, just visit my website, kittywhamproductions.com. Thanks so much for listening, have a great week, and I hope you tune in again next Wednesday. Wednesday.